Brothers and sisters, let us turn to our scripture reading for this afternoon. Two passages from the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, 19 through 29, and John 19, 28 to 42. So we begin in John chapter 5, verse 19. John 5, 19. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And then we turn to John chapter 19, beginning at verse 28, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, John 19:28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken." And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. 
So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So far our scripture reading. This afternoon I may proclaim to you the word of God as it concerning the resurrection or the death of Jesus Christ and what we confess in the Catechism in Lord's Day 16. So let's read that together as well. Lord's Day 16 of the Heidelberg Catechism where the church confesses why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God. Satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. After the proclamation of God's word, we will sing as our amen to the preaching from Psalm 116, stanzas 7, 8, and 9. Loved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, this afternoon we are dealing with the last words of Article 4 of the Apostles' Creed. He was dead and buried. He descended into hell. Those are pretty sobering words, aren't they? Words that bring us face to face with the reality of death. We all know that someday we will die. What do we, what do we think about that? We know of others who have died. You know of loved ones who have died. But what do you think about when you think of your own death? Most people fear death. But brothers and sisters, for those who are alive in Christ, death has lost its sting. It's no longer something to fear. For those who are alive in Christ today, death is the door by which we enter into the presence of our Savior, our beloved Lord and Savior. And so we may confess the comfort in the reality of Christ's victory over death. That's the theme for the sermon. And then we will consider the reality of death, the reality of Christ's victory over death, and the comfort of his victory for our life on this side of the grave already. I'm sure that you know that in the world today, most people consider death part of the cycle of life. It seems that that's the way it's always been, and most people just resign themselves to that reality. And then the conclusion is, of course, that you and I had better make the most of this life because that's the only chance we're going to get. And thankfully, Scripture and confession give us a different perspective. Death is not normal. God never intended for death to be part of human existence. But what really is death, and how should we define it? 
And what does it mean for sinful man to die? Let's examine those questions. In the beginning, you know that God created man in His image and breathed into him the breath of life. Now, the point that this makes, the point is that this makes for a unique relationship between God and man. Man received life directly from God in a way that no other creature did. And then God told the man that he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that he ate of that tree, he would die. But it seems that didn't really happen. Because after Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, they continued to live. They had children, and the Bible records that Adam even lived to the ripe old age of 930 years. Does that mean that God didn't keep His word? Well, to understand this, we need to examine what Scripture says about death. Death is not merely the separation of soul and body, but death is the everlasting desolation of hell. Death is to be separated from the love and favor of God. That's why God sent Adam and Eve away from paradise after they fell into sin, away from the tree of life. He did this to portray the effect of sin. The, the essence of death, then, is, is the wrath of God, the curse of God, the separation of our whole being from the favor of God's presence. And that's how we can say that God kept His word to Adam and Eve. If life is defined as a bond with God, then death is defined as separation from God. Now, of course, from our earthly viewpoint, the only thing that we can see of death is the end of our earthly existence. We see that our bodies return to dust. As far as the world is concerned, when someone dies, that person is no more. He can no longer experience touch or taste or smell or human companionship. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 115, the dead cannot sing praises to the Lord, for they have gone into the silence of the grave. That's the earthly perspective. From an earthly perspective, we cannot conceive of someone continuing to exist. Death deprives us of that. It deprives us of our rights and our privileges, and the grave seals that reality. Because no one returns from the grave. But in light of what God's Word reveals, we know much more about the reality of death. God's Word reveals that death is not normal. It's not a normal process. Instead, death is, is God violently interacting or, or interfering with our life. In death, He takes away our existence and our name. Death is punishment. It is the wages of sin, writes Paul in Romans 6. Death is the expression of God's wrath, the revelation of His justice against sinners. We don't just die as a matter of course, but you could say, to put it very colloquially, God kills us. And so death is God's verdict over us. In death, God declares that we are not worthy to have a place or a name in this world and that we have forfeited the right to have a relationship with Him. That is essentially the deepest meaning of death. And God, God is the God of life. And to be alive then is to have a relationship with God, to be connected to God. And the opposite of life then is to be disconnected from God. For sinners then, 
While physical death is the end of their existence in this world, it is also the beginning of eternal desolation, eternal separation from God's love and favor. For sinners, physical death is nothing less than an entrance into hell, that deep, dark pit, which the Bible describes as outer darkness, where people only experience the wrath of God and where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's no wonder that people are afraid of death. Even the bravest of men is afraid of death. Anyone who is not afraid of death is a fool in the biblical sense of the word. For apart from faith in Christ, it is foolishness to scoff at death. And people may cover their coffins in flowers and decorate their graves, but that doesn't hide the reality of death, does it? So did God keep his word to Adam? Yes, he did. After the fall into sin, death entered the world, and Adam's life became a constant death. As soon as Adam sinned, death entered his body. And this was followed by the physical death and the phys- of his physical death and the physical death of everyone who came after him. If you read Genesis chapter 5, all the descendants of Adam, there's one refrain that keeps on repeating, and he died, and he died, and he died. If not for God's grace and mercy, Adam would have been eternally separated from God. But God in His grace allowed Adam time to repent. He promised him the Messiah and He granted him faith so that he could escape eternal death. And so we come to our second point, the reality of Christ's victory over death. We confess in the catechism that Christ, or we confess that Christ died, but the catechism asks, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? After all, when Jesus was on the cross, we just read, and before he died, he said, it is finished. So did Christ really have to suffer until he died and was buried? In the catechism, we also read that Christ suffered unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, not only on the cross, but he suffered throughout his entire life. So we might ask, wasn't that enough? Was his suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane not enough? Because there, according to the Gospel of Luke, we read he suffered such anguish that his sweat became like drops of blood falling onto the ground. And his suffering was so intense that an angel had to come from heaven not to rescue him, but to support him, to strengthen him for even more suffering. But even that was not enough. Christ had to go all the way to death. Christ even prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But the cup did not pass from him. God made him drink it all right to its very dregs. It had to be that way. We confess satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way, in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. It had to be this way. And why is that, congregation? It's because of who God is. Because God would not be God if Christ had not died. God's very character would be compromised if Christ had not made satisfaction for our sins. It has everything to do with the justice and truth of God. And that comes out in question and answer 40. 
In the first place, God's justice had to be satisfied. And that's something that many people stumble over. God's justice? After all, isn't God a God of love? Where's the gospel in His justice? Doesn't that imply that God is uncompromising and that, he is, that He's rigid, that He perhaps even wants revenge, that He's harsh and uncaring? Not at all. Not at all, congregation. Far be it from us that we would think such a thing of God. God's justice, we have to know, does not offset His love. His justice is not opposed to His mercy and His grace. Because just ask yourself this question, why did God send His Son into this world? We know the answer from John 3.16, God so loved His world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And elsewhere in Scripture we read, Christ died for the ungodly. And further, God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, congregation, God's justice is accomplished in His love, and His love is fulfilled in His justice. It's only because of His love that He is just and insists that His justice be satisfied. Because we may also know, and we do know, that if His justice had not been satisfied, none of us would be recipients of His grace. It is only by the death of the Son of God that satisfaction for our sins could be made. Paul writes in Romans 8 that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who believe. These had to be met. God cannot compromise His justice and His righteousness. If He did, He would no longer be God. And this truth should make us very thankful, congregation, because His justice is our salvation. His justice is our life. We're often willing to or forced to put up with injustice, quite often. And we live in a world where accountability is a rare virtue, even in our justice system. Justice is often compromised. Thieves don't always have to pay back what they steal. And when people cheat, they don't say they're not sorry for what they did, but they're sorry because they maybe offended someone. But God's justice is not satisfied with inadequacy. His justice requires that sin be punished with death because that's what He promised Adam. And this has to do with the second attribute that is mentioned in the answer, in answer 40, the truth of God. For our God is a God who keeps His word. He told Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. Right from the very beginning, God's justice and truth were at stake. When the devil tempted Eve, his challenge immediately attacked God's truth. He tried to sow doubt in Eve's mind. Did God really say? But who was proven to be the liar and who was proven to speak the truth? God kept his word. And imagine if he had not. Would you still be able to trust the Lord? Would you be able to trust anything then that he has written in his word? If God had not kept his word to Adam, how could we ever be sure that he would not change his mind concerning 
the salvation and mercy that we receive in Jesus Christ. God is truth. And that's why we trust Him. He's not like a man. And that's something that we can rejoice in. He never compromised His truth or His justice. God's justice and His truth are the reason for Christ's death on the cross. And it's because of that death that we are free from the power of death. When man was created in the image of God, he enjoyed perfect communion with his Creator. He reflected God's justice and truth back to him. He imaged it back to God. But when he sinned, he destroyed that part of that relationship too. He lost, then he lost the blessing of spiritual, physical, and eternal life. It was no longer his. Instead, the curse of death entered man's life, severed his relationship with God. And yes, he continued to live for a while, but it was a dead life. Instead of joy and happiness, Adam and Eve experienced sorrow and grief. Instead of living under God's blessing, they lived in a cursed world. And they experienced the breakdown of life in their bodies and in their relationships. They had a broken family. And eventually they returned to the dust from there they, where they were taken. And they lived under the curse of death which meant that mankind would be forever removed from God's blessing with both soul and body condemned to hell. That is the full consequence of death. But we know that that didn't happen. God did not turn His back on Adam and Eve. Instead, He came to them in the Garden of Eden and He reached out to them as they were cowering from Him, hiding from Him. And you know, brothers and sisters, we might still ask ourselves, would God's justice not have been satisfied if He had simply destroyed Adam and Eve? In other words, destroyed all of mankind. Because does justice not demand that the same ones who sinned against the Most High Majesty of God should not also pay for that sin? If all sinners would, would die, would that not satisfy God's justice? Well, you could say yes, but at the same time, no. We confess in our in our confession, because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. In no other way. And that's because God is also the God of love. All of God's attributes come to light in the gospel, and that's why we stand in awe of this good news that we receive in Christ Jesus. That's why we glory in the death of Christ, because His death is our life. By His death, He freed us from the curse of death. It is in the death of the Son of God that God's justice and His love meet. It's on the cross. where That's where God's justice and truth shine the brightest. That's where His mercy and His justice come together in a most profound way. For Christ's death satisfied God's justice and truth in full. And question and answer 44 makes that very clear. Christ endured for us the full horror of hellish agony. He suffered the full extent of the eternal wrath of God. He experienced what we could never experience. We'd never make it through that. God's dearly beloved Son took upon Himself the curse that lay on us. He paid for people like you and I, people who by nature don't even want to know anything about salvation. And do you see then 
brothers and sisters, how God's justice and His love do not oppose each other. That it is precisely in God's justice that His love is also portrayed. Christ's death completely satisfied God's justice, and His burial proves it. Human beings, all of us, when we die, we suffer the separation of body and soul. And so Christ also had to suffer that final humiliation. The king of all the earth was put into the grave. There's nothing that belongs to our punishment that he did not fully endure. Christ is so completely our substitute, our atoning sacrifice, that he experienced every aspect of our sinful existence. God said, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Christ had to experience that too, and he did. He died a full death to fully satisfy the justice and truth of God so that we might fully live for God. In the words of Christ himself from John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so for believers, death has lost its sting. It's no longer a punishment for the curse of sin. That curse has been removed once for all. Instead, death becomes for believers the gateway to paradise. And therein lies our great comfort. Christ's death and victory over death changes everything for us. He paid so we don't have to pay. When we accept Christ's work for ourselves, when we place our trust in Him, then we are free, free from that curse. We're redeemed from sin and once again received into God's favor. And that's, that truth means that our relationship with God completely changes. We don't have to fear His eternal wrath anymore but we may bask in His love and His favor. He is and remains the source of our life. His face is turned toward us in peace. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ dwells in us. And so we will never be alone again, for He is always with us because we are united to Him through His Spirit. And that same Spirit also renews our life. And He enables us to live in the way of our confession, where we confess the evil desires of the flesh no longer reign in us, but we may offer ourselves to Him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. And that sacrifice, brothers and sisters, is not only true of our relationship with God, but also of our relationship to God's people. We may enjoy the communion of saints. We may enjoy the experience and the truth of Psalm 122, let us go together to the house of God. And so when we give ourselves to the Lord, we also give ourselves to one another. Together we have been redeemed. We have been freed from the wages of sin. And so together we serve our Redeemer in the freedom that He has obtained for us. And that freedom, that freedom gives us assurance and comfort, especially in our greatest sorrows and temptations. And they will come. Temptations will come. Temptations come when we're persecuted. Temptations come when God sends disasters and catastrophes into our life, when He sends trials into our lives. Temptation comes when we have to spend time in the hospital 
or when we face the death of a loved one or our own death. But in our temptations and in our sorrows, we may be assured and comforted that Christ has delivered us from the anguish and torment of hell. He has done that already. And no Christian has to go through that, ever. And that comfort and assurance is so important, brothers and sisters. Because it's during times of temptation that that Satan wants us to doubt this gospel truth. That everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. It's at times when, when we doubt that he only wants you to see your sins. He wants you to look back in your life and just, just concentrate on your sins instead of looking at the cross of Christ. He wants you to dwell on your sins instead of dwelling on the fact that you have a Redeemer. And He wants, to look, wants you to look back on your life and see all the sins that you've committed as if there never was a Redeemer. That's what He wants. As if Christ never paid for the wages of sin. He wants us to look away from the cross and he, he wants us to just look at ourselves. But what happens when we look at ourselves? Well, then of course we're lost. We have no hope. Because we are still sinful. And then we lose comfort. And so in all our sorrow and temptations, whatever they may be, we have to stick close to the Word of God and to the comfort of the Gospel. We have to see the cross in the light of God's grace for us, for whom Christ died. We must truly believe Christ took my sin away. He took my curse away. I'm truly free, and I may come before my Father in heaven because He has given me this sure promise. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Satan hates those words. The devil hates those words because they make him impotent. And those words make doubt impotent. Those words are the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so, brothers and sisters, never forget that Christ is alive. God has placed you in a world, in this world, in which Christ has already won the victory on this side of the grave. And that's our freedom because it opens the way for us to go to God and Satan can't stop you because he's a liar. But we know the truth. And the truth is that in Christ we are free from sin and death. And yes, we still live in a world that's affected by sin. But our new freedom in Christ opens up the way for us also to put to death the effect of, of sin. To put to death in us the effect of death in us. Christ's victory over death has in principle broken the power of death. That's a reality. It's a reality we can only accept by faith. And it's a reality that we only experience when we follow the way of the cross. And what that means then, to follow the way of the cross, is that we must more and more put to death our old nature, which is the nature of sin, and increasingly live in our new nature, which is the nature we receive from Christ and from the Holy Spirit. We have to die to sin 
and walk in newness of life. And that means that we also have to be actively engaged in fighting the enemy. That's what we're called to do. We have to fight against any works of death that remain in us. And yes, that's a difficult battle. It's a battle of life and death, in fact. We are to be Christian soldiers, but we can only win this battle in the power of Jesus Christ and in the belief that He has bought our freedom. But it's a battle that we can win. In fact, in the power of Jesus Christ, it's not a battle that you can lose. We who believe in Christ and trust in Him fight this battle knowing that Christ has already won the victory for us. And so, when we stand at the grave of a loved one or we think about the fact that someday we will be carried to the cemetery as well. We can be assured that because Christ has bought our freedom, our old nature too will be forever buried in that grave. The old nature goes into the grave and we will be resurrected with a new nature. And the old nature stays right there. That's why we confess that our death is not a payment for sin, but it puts an end to sin. And it's an entrance into eternal life. And that's what gives us so much comfort and assurance when we're confronted by sorrow and temptation because that's what really counts. When, when the world's confronted by death, the world tries to... It speaks of grievous loss. But the believer speaks of eternal gain. The world tries to comfort itself. But the believer goes to Jesus Christ and prays, Come, Lord Jesus. That's the gospel message of the death of Christ. In His death, your death is no longer something to be feared. Amen.